Today on Bread for the Broken with James Grizzle, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Galveston. And this paralyzed dude is really trusting of his friends, right? Like he's like, you're going to do what? Like you guys are going to lower me down. I trust you. Speaks of his faith as well. And then they begin to lower this dude down through the roof right in front of Jesus. Jesus just stops, probably lets the guy come down and lays there. And then he addresses this issue, this disruption, so to speak. In today's message, Pastor James introduces us to a paralyzed man and his friends. Oftentimes we hear this story and we're encouraged to be the friends that are willing to carry someone to Jesus. But have you ever considered the flip side of this narrative? What does it look like to take on the role of the paralyzed man? Scripture tells us that being involved in biblical community is crucial on our path to spiritual maturity. Can you humble yourself enough to admit that you can't do life on your own? Now here's Pastor James in the book of Mark chapter 2 with today's edition of Bread for the Broken. Who were some of the ones within your life who brought you to Jesus? Think back on that. It's worth revisiting right now. It's worth playing back within your mind. Who were some of the ones that were instrumental within your life? You essentially were the paralyzed person on the mat and they picked you up and they made sure that you got to where you needed to be so that you can meet him. Who were the ones in your life? There had to been somebody, probably, Somebody probably brought you to him. Maybe somebody shared a gospel with you. Maybe somebody shared a, a gospel track with you. Maybe it was parents. Maybe it was grandparents that had just faithfully been praying for you constantly. And if you're drawing a blank, well, maybe it's because maybe nobody has, but maybe you're here today for that reason. The other side of that coin is this. Who are you bringing to Jesus? Who are you going out of your way for to help pick them up and get them to where they can meet him? People can get saved anywhere. I did not get saved in a church. I got saved, well, I was about as close to heaven as you can get. I was in the mountains of Colorado. So elevation-wise, I was working my way there, right? But I was as lost as can be. I was all by myself in Colorado when I got saved. But there were people that were instrumental in getting me to that place. Who in your life, who in your life, if you've been brought to the Lord Jesus, somebody did that for you, who are you doing that for? Who are you actively doing that for? You have to be doing this. You have to be. And that's not, thus saith James, because you don't care about thus saith James. You care about thus saith the Lord. And he says, you will go and make disciples. That is a command. And you don't have disciples unless you have converts. You can't be a disciple of Jesus unless you are saved by Jesus. Who are you leading? Who are you picking up? Who are you bringing to Jesus? 
write their names down in your Bible. Because maybe they're not coming willingly. Maybe they are rejecting it. This guy on the mat could have been like, no, I don't want to. But he didn't. He wanted to get there. He just needs somebody to bring him there. You'd be surprised at how many people actually want this hope. You'd be surprised at how many people want peace that surpasses all understanding within their lives. You would be surprised at how many people are carrying around these heavy burdens of guilt and shame, and they want to be set free. They just need friends to come alongside them and pick them up and get them to where they need to be. I'm grateful for these four men. I'm grateful for this story. I think this serves as a great encouragement for us because we know what it feels like to be the one who is like, I can't move. I can't move. I know what I want and I know where I want to be, but man, I am paralyzed right now. I think we know what that feels like. You can even feel that way in following Jesus as well. That fear can overcome you so strongly where it paralyzes you. You need friends who can pick you up and place you at the feet of Jesus. Even as a believer, we need this still. We know what that feels like. So I've experienced that personally. I've gone through moments of that where I have cried out to friends and said, look, I need you to lift me up because, man, I can't breathe right now. And I've been one of the friends when somebody's called out and says, "I, I just need you to, I just need you to pray. I'm lifting you up right now, right now. I'll be one of those four friends who grabs a corner of that mat and we'll get you to Jesus, so to speak. This is never ending. It's never ending. It never goes away. And we want more of this, more of this. I praise God for four determined individuals who are carrying their friend. And as soon as they get to this house, it is packed out and they can't even get in. Nobody even inside the house is willing to move out so that this guy can get in. That's a, there's a whole other lesson there. It's so packed out, but there's a guy who obviously needs to be front and center, and nobody's willing to give up their spot so that he can go in. Don't be like the crowd. Do not be like the crowd who probably passed by this guy every single day. Don't be like the crowd. Well, it's my seat. I showed up early. I got front row seats, front row tickets to the Jesus show. Like, I waited for this. No, if somebody needs it more, then you move out of the way and let them have that space. That's the other element of walking with Jesus and being a disciple. It's death to self. Make room. Make room for those who need it. So they get there. As Jesus is preaching the word of God to them, there's no room even outside the door. They can't get in at all. Verse three picks up with the four men. They arrived carrying the guy on the mat. Verse four, they couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, which is, we think like, oh, that's so cool. Like the house is packed out for Jesus. No, that's a problem. I've seen it both ways. Anytime I've stayed through this, I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. The houses are packing out because Jesus is there and he's preaching the word. No, I'm sorry, but when studying through it this time, I'm like, that's a problem. That's a problem when the church is so packed out that the ones who need to get there can't get in. Make room, make room. 
And if they don't make room, then you find a way in. That's what these guys did. The houses back then, this is another way that they were pretty much all set up with. They had an outside staircase that led up to the flat roof, right? And sometimes they'd have a little room that was built upon the roof. That would be the mother-in-law and quarters, okay? That's when they would put mom up there, right? So everybody else would live down here, and then mom's up on the roof, okay? I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know. Personally, I kind of like that idea for myself. You know, you got a whole like roof patio thing. I take it away from all the noise. Absolutely. But by and large, the roof was just flat surface and it was composed of like sticks and some brick kind of stuff. And you can easily tear through this roof. So these four guys, they encounter an obstacle. We can't get in, but they don't give up. How many times have we given up? when it's just become so difficult to get to them. And there's an obstacle in the way. And we encounter that obstacle and it's like, well, maybe the Lord doesn't want me to. No, that's not true. The Lord wants more determined individuals. He doesn't need more people who are just so willing to give up at any slightest thing, hindrance. You keep pressing on. That's the whole story with the Apostle Paul. We went through this in the book of Acts as he's going on his missionary journeys. He wanted to get to specific regions. And when he would show up, the Holy Spirit would say no. So what did he do? He packed his bags and he went home. No, he kept trying. This door's not opening. I'll go on to the next door. That door doesn't open. I'll go on to the next door. I will keep knocking, keep seeking, keep asking. The Lord wants that from his followers. Not one to show up and it's like, oh, the door's locked. I guess that's God's will. I'll just go back home. What? That's no. Knock again. Look for another door. There's got to be another way. Because who knows? Maybe the Lord just wants you to kind of stick it out. Get a little stronger. These four men, they get this idea. They can't bring him in through the door. We'll go up through the roof. This is a crazy idea because... Here's what we need to understand about this story. These four men who are willing to carry their friend up these stairs onto this flat roof are also taking on the financial responsibility of fixing Peter's roof when they're done. Don't think that they just left it as a hole. Because then I'd be mad if I'm Peter. I'm like, the hole, like what? Who's going to fix that? I don't have home insurance. Who's going to fix that? We can be certain I would imagine, just based on what seems like the character of these individuals, we'll make the hole, but we'll fix it. But we're going to do whatever it takes to get our friend at the feet of Jesus. So they go up there. They locate, they're like, when we looked in, he was kind of standing right here. So if we dig a hole right here, we can drop him right in front of Jesus. And that's what they begin to do. They begin to dig a hole through this roof and they're removing tiles and, you know, sticks and clay and all this good stuff. They're just moving it. So you can imagine as Jesus is preaching the word and the crowd has filled the room, dust and dirt is falling from the ceiling as he's talking. So you're standing there, you're like, what in the world is going on? And then sunlight. Peter just got a new skylight. And he's like, I didn't want that. But there it is, a skylight, and there's four dudes looking down. Can you imagine their faces after they dug through this hole? And they're just all looking down through this hole at this crowd and at Jesus. 
So as they dug through this, right above his head, right above the, where Jesus was teaching, it says, then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. So probably they got his mat and they probably, because Peter's a fisherman, he probably has ropes there at his house. They rig up a system and this paralyzed dude is really trusting of his friends, right? Like he's like, you're going to do what? Like you guys are going to lower me down. I trust you. Speaks of his faith as well. And then they begin to lower this dude down through the roof right in front of Jesus. And Jesus just stops, probably lets the guy come down and lays there. And then he addresses this issue, this disruption, so to speak. And it's not. It's a God-ordained interruption is what it is. This is going to prove to be a great lesson for everybody that's watching, for the religious people within the room, but then also 2,000 plus a few you know, years later, it's a great lesson for you and I. Verse 5 says, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child or my son, your sins are forgiven. So who are the, the there? Is it the four friends' faith? Is it the four friends plus the paralytic's faith? Yes, I believe that. I believe it's the four friends' faith, but I also believe that the paralytic had faith on his own as well. We don't know if he asked to be brought to Jesus or if his friends just loved him and cared enough about him that said, I don't care what you think, you're going to Jesus, okay? Because we need that sometimes too. He probably had faith, again, in his friends for lowering him down through a roof. You know, that, that takes a certain amount of faith as well, right? I believe he wanted to get there. And we know that his four friends absolutely wanted him in the presence of Jesus because they knew Jesus could heal him. I believe there was an element to this paralyzed man, the paralytic, that he probably believed that Jesus could heal him as well. So Jesus, seeing their faith, says to the paralyzed man, my son, your sins are forgiven. And you're thinking, well, you're one of the four. You're like, well, no, we didn't bring him here for that. Well, no, he's paralyzed Jesus. We brought him here so that you would restore him. And he's like, I just did. I just did. No, no, we, we want you to address the greatest need in his life. And Jesus said, I just did. I just did. Even if this dude never walked again, the biggest issue in his life was solved on that day by Jesus. And I think this paralyzed man knew it. And I think he probably would have been okay. He's like, your sins are forgiven. And this immediately triggers the scribes within the room. The scribes were like the religious leaders of that day. Why are they occupying space in there? Why didn't they give up their seat? I can tell you, probably the religious people of that day probably were the ones owning the front row seats. I can't say this dogmatically, meaning I can't say this like being 100% sure about this, but this is my speculation. They were the ones occupying the front row and would have never been willing to leave the house so that the paralyzed guy could be right there. Oftentimes, that's how it is with religious people. They're not willing to give up their seat. They're not. They're not willing all the time to make way 
for other people. They're just not. So I think they're there and they hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. And they are absolutely right in their accusation. It says, verse six, some of the teachers of religious law, the scribes who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. This is speaking out against God. This is punishable by death, what he's doing. Only God can forgive sins and they are absolutely correct. Absolutely correct in their accusation. Only God could forgive sins. And Jesus is about to throw it down on them. Like, yeah, you're right. Only God can. And here I am. Incarnate in flesh. They are scribes. They are teachers of the religious law. They know it better than anybody else. And even prophets back then, they would say, the Lord has put your sins away. That's as far as they would ever go to making a statement like that. The Lord has done this for you. Jesus himself says, your sins are forgiven. I'm claiming authority to forgive you of your sins is what he says. And they immediately think he deserves to die. Because if anybody else said this, and a lot of guys were going around promising to do this and promising to do that. But Jesus is actually making this statement, he deserves to die. They don't even have to say it. He didn't even need to heal those paralyzed men. The fact that he does what comes next should have like triggered within their brains that, wait a minute, maybe he is God. Because they didn't say this to each other. They thought this. It says Jesus immediately knew what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? So he pauses and he calls these guys out for a second. He's like, hey, you got a problem with that? Did I say something that made you upset? The scribes, the religious leaders, the teachers of religious law are saying Jesus is claiming to be God. These are the experts. So if you ever hear anybody say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, you have to read the Bible again because he does. And that's why this is the first time it comes out this charge will be brought up again later because all the religious people of this day knew exactly what he was doing. He was claiming to be God. He did all throughout the gospels. He didn't just claim it. He backed it up. He knew what they were thinking. There was a thought back then too, that prophets could possibly discern the thoughts of others. But there's no like, can they or couldn't they? And if they did, it certainly was a work of God. Jesus immediately knows what they're thinking. How does he immediately know what they're thinking? Well, because he is God in flesh. All those Psalms that we read about how, you know, where can I go from your presence? All, you know, these beautiful Psalms, Psalm 139. This is how he knows your thoughts. He knows every word you're going to say before you even speak that word. He knows of all your thoughts, which is probably terrifying for most of us. You're like, oh, no, Lord, don't know. No, I, yes, please. You know what you're dealing with. You know what you're working with. He knows your thoughts. He knows you. He knows you. And he cares for you. The reason why he's addressing these guys is because, believe it or not, he actually cared about religious people as well. Why do you question this in your hearts? 
Verse nine, is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or stand up, pick up your mat and walk? Well, it's totally easier to say your sins are forgiven because how do you judge that? In the moment, right? That seems like that's a, well, yeah, it's, it's so much easier to say that because the other option requires physical evidence, right? So if he were to say, stand up, pick up your mat and go home, well, that guy would actually have to do that. And then there's your proof right there. But to say your sins are forgiven, well, we could say that to each other all day long. So logically, the answer for them would be, well, to say your sins are forgiven would be the easier thing to state. But Jesus doesn't even give them the option to retort or to come back. He says, I'll prove to you that I'm the son of man. That's a title that he's taken on himself that has connections back into the book of Daniel. Once we get a little bit further into the gospel of Mark, where this title gets used more frequently, we'll define that a little bit more, but it's like a messianic title, okay? He's God in flesh, the son of man. A lot of that is also identifying with us, okay? Well, we'll get into that later. He says, I'll prove to you that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns to the paralyzed man and says, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. This is what I find this hysterical too. Jesus like kicks him out, right? He's like, hey, uh, he could have stayed. Jesus could have been like, hey, stand up, roll up that mat, do some jumping jacks, run around the room, you know? He's like, stand up, roll up your mat and get out of here. The guy's like, hops up, rolls up his mat, and he's gone. And he's gone. I would have been like, no, stay. You just run around, like, show us this miraculous act. Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Jesus tells this man, this paralyzed man, fully aware of his physical condition, having just solved his greatest need, and that was the need of forgiveness of sins. He tells the man to do the impossible. Again, we don't know how long this guy's been paralyzed. Part of that is we don't even know if this man has ever walked in his life. We don't know. More than likely, probably at one point in time had. You may or may not know if if you've ever encountered like a traumatic injury and you've been off your feet for a certain amount of time. Your muscles, you don't use them, you lose them. I mean, that's just how it goes. And if you're flat on your back for a certain amount of time, walking, although at one point in time, and it still kind of is a natural thing, it doesn't always come back naturally and automatically. There's a reason why there's a lot of rehabilitation for major traumatic injuries, even that don't involve the legs or anything like that, because you have to relearn how to move again. Here's a man who's been paralyzed for, we have no idea how long. Maybe he had learned how to walk at some point in time before he was paralyzed. Maybe he's never learned how to walk. The point of it is, is Jesus says, hey, stand up, do something you've never done for, or we probably haven't done in a very long time that you yourself don't have the power. You don't have the willpower and the positive thinking and all that stuff to make this happen. You need to obey me. Stand up. Guy stands up. Roll up your mat. Dude rolled up his mat. Get out. (laughs) And the guy walked out. Like, he didn't say it like that, but you know what I'm saying. Like, he's like, yeah, go ahead. Go home.
Thanks for joining us today here on Bread for the Broken with Pastor James Grizzle. We're walking through the Gospel of Mark, one of the accounts of Jesus' life while he was here on the earth. Mark offers unique perspectives on this time, emphasizing Jesus' servanthood to the people that he met. Jesus loved practically, often, and with everyone. What a kind and humble servant we get to serve. If you need to hear this message again or you'd like to catch up on previous teachings, visit our website at breadforthebroken.com. Once you're there, simply click on the Listen tab and feel free to explore the variety of verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter Bible teachings. Bread for the Broken is a ministry of Calvary Galveston. And if you're ever in the Galveston area, we would love to have you come visit us. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. for a time of worship and Bible study. Our Thursday night Bible study starts at 7 p.m., and you're welcome to come join us for both. Our atmosphere at Calvary Galveston is relaxed, so feel free to come just as you are. For more information, visit our website. Once again, that's breadforthebroken.com. You can get directions there as well. We're excited to meet you and spend some time worshiping with you. That's all the time that we have for today, but we're so glad that you listened in to hear from God's Word. We encourage you to read ahead in the book of Mark and to gear up for what's ahead in this New Testament book. There's so much to learn, so much to know about Jesus. So make plans to join us again, right here on Bread for the Broken. Let me paint the picture of you.